Welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Wilfitz. I'm a life science research manager and consultant. I'm here to help scientists and to help those who are managing to help science be successful. In this radio podcast, we'll explore current strategies and practices taken by some of the most respected life science leaders of today. We'll be hosting guests who lead independent or academic research labs, startup pharmaceuticals and biotech entrepreneurs, and other operational support leaders, VPs, chief operating officers, managers, and the like. We'll explore some of the following lessons, what steps they've taken to reach their current scientific goals, what unexpected challenges they faced along the way, and what tools and skills that have been critical to their success. We'll listen to what advice they would give to those who are willing to follow them and to pursue a career in leading life sciences. Again, thank you for joining and welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is episode number five. We're coming to you with a two-part show. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Enrique Saez. Enrique is an associate professor at Scripps Research Institute. His lab is studying the molecular mechanism of metabolic disorders like diabetes and obesity. Enrique has made a rather unique and successful transitional journey in his career. He began a successful academic training at Harvard Medical School where he did his PhD and has gone on from there to do great postdoctoral training at the Salt Biological Institute. From there, Enrique went the industry route to the research arm of the Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis, known as GNF, Genomic Institute of Novartis Research Foundation. He wanted to further develop some of his team's great findings in diabetes research into real-world clinical applications and to further understand the drug discovery process. He wanted his work to have real-world impact. However, his passion for independent research discoveries drew him back to the academic side of life sciences, all with the added extra bonus of his newfound business acumen, which I believe has given him a unique scientific advantage. We'll recap this journey in two parts, where in part one, we'll focus on the transition to and from industry. And in part two, we'll uncover how he actually successfully manages his academic lab today using those learned business skills. Let's chat with him today and hear about his journey and see what awesome lessons he can teach us so that we can be successful in our life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to go from the fast-paced race of industry back to the ivory towers of academia? Let's listen in. Again, thanks so very much, Enrique, for joining us today. No problem. Yes. Happy to talk to you. Awesome. Yeah, no. I mean, like, I'll tell you right now, tell, like I told everyone, you're, you've been like a great mentor and advisor and like one of my bestest friends here. So I want to kind of like highlight this to everyone and kind of like give your story because I've actually almost been kind of a, along that ride with you there. So let's start off with your science. Okay, so my lab works on basically the molecular basis of metabolic disease with an emphasis on metabolic disorders such as obesity and diabetes. And what we're trying to do is basically figuring out <clears throat> some of the biological pathways that have not been described yet that may play a role in the development of these diseases. Um, and the ultimate goal is to really try to come up with new therapeutic targets to combat these conditions. 
And we use a lot of different types of tools in our work, from functional genomics to small molecules to chemoproteomic methods and proteomics, um, trying to figure out, you know, can we do something different from every other group that is out there and that is, you know, typically much bigger than my own group. So in a nutshell, that's a little bit of what we do. So you've been in this for the past 15, 20 years, and you've seen so much change within the area of uh, metabolic biology, and especially now that obesity and diabetes are at the forefront of uh, some of our, the most uh, populated areas in the in the in the U.S. and now starting to hit in some of the developing worlds. Do you feel that the field is becoming a little bit more crowded and, and is it harder to kind of compete in that in that area, in this region? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there are there's plenty more interest in uh, these conditions and particularly in the role that adipose tissue, which is what my lab focuses on, um, plays in the development of obesity and really all the conditions associated with it, such as type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and so on. But I think that's just a reflection that it was an unexplored area or unaddressed uh, up until now. So there is quite a bit of people work, there are quite a bit of people working in the field, but uh, the emphasis should be there because they are uh, really ridiculous uh, problems in terms of the, the way that the incidence of these conditions is going up worldwide. Um, so we do need to come up with better ways to figure out how we can combat these diseases. Besides lifestyle changes, which we're all aware uh, can work, but they're hard to comply with in many cases. You know, I mentioned about your stint within GNF and Novartis Research Foundation and how you made that transition to Scripps. What made you kind of make that transition? I think, I think you have pretty much a clear goal in mind. Do you think that that transition happened just because of the, the field itself or maybe is it the resources that were provided? Can we talk a little bit about that aspect? So, I mean, I'm not sure which transition you're talking about, Damien. I can tell you why I made the first transition to the first decision to go into industry. Frankly, at a time when coming out of um, prestigious academics lab, that was always uh, still looked down upon. You were not following the academic ivory tower type of route. I made that transition because, frankly, I was a little tired of publishing these high-impact papers in many cases where we had discovered that a particular gene or a particular pathway was really quite critical for the development of, say, tumor progression in skin cancer or, um, you know, a new way to tackle diabetes that we had tested out in mice. Um, and then you publish the paper and you sort of rely on everyone else, the biotech companies, the pharmaceutical companies, to really make something useful out of that finding while you yourself move on to the next level. 
of basic research understanding. And I thought that, to me, at that point, I became unsatisfactory. I wanted to see how basic research findings are really translated into something useful that could go into the clinic. So that's what prompted me to transition to GNF um, from my postdoc position. Um, and GNF was a great time. Uh, at the time that I joined, it was a relatively small enterprise with about 100 people, and it was much more academic-oriented than by the time I left, where in the, in the four or five years I was there, it grew up to about 600 people, and frankly, the culture changed quite a bit. Um, as Novartis Pharmaceuticals uh, became more involved, and just actually, as organizations grow, um, there's typically a more strict division of labor. Uh, your role becomes a bit more constrained. Mm -hmm. There are also more bureaucratic boundaries. And, and I also came to realize that through my interactions with Novartis and other pharma that um, there's really a dearth of targets when it comes to new therapies and that, that many pharmaceutical companies are really very risk averse and they're all working on the very same kinases or the very same nuclear receptors uh, as potential therapies when and when one thinks about it <clears throat> all the drugs out there on the market probably target about 500 to at most a thousand proteins in the genome um, so we have more than 20,000 others that remain to be explored that could be uh, new ways to tackle um, disease. So I was interested in transitioning back to a scenario where once again I would retain a bit more of the decision power to direct the work such that we could be more experimental, we could uh, take on risk, risky projects at least for a little bit of time and to really go into unexplored areas um, and unearth new biology that could potentially be um, modulated towards uh, an eventual application uh, to the clinic. So what I'm hearing is the fact that you kind of missed a little bit of that adventure in the discovery process and you felt as though that the growth of uh, GNF became much more kind of industry company, stereoty uh, stereotypically industry company-like. So is that kind of like what you were feeling? Yeah, no, I think that that's probably correct. I mean, I think, like I said, it's not nothing necessarily specific um, to the growth of GNF. I think just as a structure, as its organizations grow, there has to be more coordination and alignment with greater goals, often you know, you may or may not be aware of these goals that management um, has uh, for the organization, especially when, you know, GNF was part of a larger, much larger organization, Novartis itself, so with many different sites and so on, and many different priorities, and we were not always aware of um, the, the ultimate goal that management may have had in, in mind but, uh, but yeah, I wanted to be, so as the structures, as organizations grow, 
there has to be more points of control. There has to be more um, more coordination between different types of groups. In the case of, of drug discovery, between the chemists, the pharmacologists, the biologists, the the clinical development people, and so on. Uh, and you tend to become a bit more. Uh, I don't want to say pigeonhole, but that's probably a a good description of what your job becomes. You may be working on exciting projects, but you're not necessarily seeing all the aspects of, uh, of a project. Um, now, I don't think that's the case in smaller biotechs or in smaller organizations, and that certainly wasn't the case at the beginning when GNF was only a uh, hundred people or so. But as organizations mature and become much larger, I think that's just uh, almost a, a logical way of uh, harnessing the efforts of so many different people and coordinating them towards uh, a final goal. So then your experience within the industry type of uh, framework and your experience in academia do you think that you probably could have had just as much success and luck in maybe joining another joint venture within a, a biotech startup or a, a pharma startup in that manner? Do you think that your skill set would have helped you to like develop even some of these uh, newer, younger companies at the time? Or do you felt, did you think that academia would provide you of some of those same kind of discovery processes? Because I think earlier on you were stating the fact that you felt as though the in, uh, you really wanted to have much more tangible outcomes to a lot of your uh, toward a lot of the research and the research that is going on and sometimes at the end of the day it, it go, does come down to an actual physical uh, physical drug or therapy that is actually really helping real-world issues yeah no when I transition out of GNF um, going to a smaller biotech would have probably made sense mm -hmm. I you know, to be perfectly frank, I didn't consider too, too many options at the time, uh, really for personal reasons more than anything else. Um, but I think the skill set that I acquired in my time at GNF um, would have uh, certainly translated and uh, helped out in the biotech world. Uh, and in the academic world, it also is very useful to have a background um, having sort of left the academic career and then coming back with that different mind view uh, about certain things, different um, skill set in terms of, you know, having learned to work with small molecules and having learned to communicate uh, effectively with chemists and pharmacologists and different teams rather than having stayed in academia where you're more focused on your particular area of interest and you don't tend to interact too, too much with groups traditionally outside of your area. You know, I'm actually glad that you mentioned that. I think this is a unique skill set that many in academics, in the academic setting doesn't possess is that like ability to communicate in such a broad spectrum of different disciplines and it's actually becoming much more important as the complexity of science uh, starts to develop. I definitely see a lot of, uh, of this from the business side, uh, the business sector, where a lot of uh, business 
minded scientists with a better uh, business acumen is coming. Do you think that has this kind of leveraged your ability to communicate in the academic uh, in the academic realm as well? Well, yeah, I think my experience in sort of multidisciplinary culture uh, sort of shaped my decision to actually join Scripps, where I could once again interact with great chemists, great people doing structural biology, or great biologists themselves. Um, I was looking for an environment where all those sort of tools would be available to maintain that sort of level of collaboration, which I think it's critical to advance science now that things are becoming so complex and uh, it's in our best interest to draw from as many tools and disciplines as possible to tackle some of the bigger questions uh, left in many of these fields. So then how did that conversation then go when you started looking uh, for, I guess you were pretty uh, narrowed down on at, at scripts and stuff, but how did that conversation go with, uh, with the selection committee? Oh, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, I presented, you know, uh, the transition to academia from industry is feasible if you maintain a bit of your network and if you really try to make an effort to continue publishing even mm-hmm, if it's through, mm-hmm. <clears throat> through collaborations where you may not be the primary author, but because, frankly, in industry, you know, publication is less of, of a um, benchmark. You're more encouraged to produce particular results or particular meet particular development goals. Publication is something that, uh, you know, sometimes is welcome, but it's not as required as it is in academia. Nonetheless, if you are interested in, um, number one, the work that you're doing and putting the extra time uh, in putting together a publication, then that, in my case, helped out quite a bit in making the transition back to academia uh, because I could speak about some of the work we had published with collaborators and some of the work we had on our own um, ongoing that really suited the view of the institute in this case. Mm-hmm. So I think people were quite attracted to the fact that I had a bit of a diverse background, um, you know, having been and still been a biologist by training, but having learned to leverage, you know, high throughput screening approaches and small molecule tools, um, genome wide functional genomic tools, and so on. I think that that was a strength uh, in the views of the committee. That's awesome. I think you hit upon a, a lot of those kind of uh, leveraging the skill sets and tools that I don't think enough um, trained scientists that they think of their uh, set of skills as transferable. And you mentioned about retaining your network connections and collaborations and this is a real, like, real solid, uh, solid point which a lot of people struggle with because they leave academia and then they just kind of close all those doors. However, retaining those kind of conversations and going to a lot of these seminars and conferences that where academics uh, state is a real is a real good key place at which you can continue to develop. Do you feel as though that like some of these business type of acumens that you've actually possessed, do you think that kind of helped leverage that, make that easy transition for you? 
Yeah, no, for me it was not difficult to transition back to academia. Um, like I said, because some of these skills that I had acquired were attractive to scripts. Um, and I was attracted to scripts because of the culture there that is very interactive, uh, multidisciplinary, and really uh, you know, could benefit from people with sort of my training. I hate to say that because it sounds pompous, but uh, uh, really, you know, people that can bridge different disciplines are, and I'm not saying that I can do that very well relative to other people, but I think there, there's, that's when some of the more interesting work gets done. Yeah, it's really great when you can find others that actually complement your uh, your sets of skills rather than complete your sense of, sets of skills. And I think that academia really possesses that collaborative nature in which gets growing up in, in the academic community. That I definitely cherish that amount, uh, that kind of culture. So now that you're, uh, that you're, you're in the academic setting, that you're, you've gotten your war, you've gotten your uh, startup package, like, how do you how do you then like jump in? And I think I think a lot of people kind of kind of go in and then they just see an empty room, bunch of like uh, Fisher Fisher boxes, and you're like, all right, let's see what we're gonna do. What were some of the things that? What were some of those first steps that uh, you did to like kind of get off the ground there? Well, the first thing we did was to unpack all the damn boxes. <laughs> <laughs> um, because there were a lot of boxes and. And equipment to be set up and I think one of the critical things when you're starting off is to um, have somebody you trust come along and help you out. In my case that happened to be one of the postdocs that I had uh, at GNF transitioned with me and was extremely good and he helped me set up the lab so that we were up and running fairly quickly. In the case of Friends of mine, uh, I've encouraged them to hire, uh, as they leave their postdoc position in academia, to hire one of the, you know, the techs they may have worked with that may be interested in transitioning as well, um, because it really does help to have somebody that you can work well with uh, at the outset to help you navigate how to set up the lab and how to, um, well, frankly, uh, get things going. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's a bit different when, you know, as opposed to most, most of us were in labs that were already set up and running and we were just a little bit of a, an addition. We didn't really have to um, think about the structure and so on of the entire lab. We may have had to modify things within the lab or set up new, I don't know, screen area or an instrument or that sort of thing, but uh, this is a little bit of a bigger scale when you, when you go in and set it all up. Uh, at the same time, it's a very exciting time because you feel now you have your own space and it's up to you to make the best of it and to you know, really show your stuff with something interesting. Yeah, I like that point where you, you said having somebody there that you can work well with and you can trust because you start to create like this division of labor. You're like, you handle this aspect and figure this out, and I'll handle this aspect and figure that out. I mean, as well as you already know that like 
uh, I also have to thank you for it, is work, uh, working with Peter Tontenos. And it was that transition where he just kind of like, we looked at a, a room, an empty room full of like Fisher boxes and we both looked at it. He looked at me, he, I looked at it, he, I looked at him. He patted me on the back and said, good luck and walked right out of the lab. He goes, I got some grants to write. You guys, you figure out at the operational side. And that, he made a point in this, is like, that made, that gave him the opportunity to focus on a lot of the, the financial part of writing grants and putting up some uh, the protocols and things that, the things that I wasn't trained to do. And he could trust me the, to like get that all set up. And I think early, early career uh, investigators kind of struggle with like trying to screen for somebody is, can I trust them? And it's always in that uh, back of your mind is, are they going to have this up and running? Do you, do you find is that some people kind of struggle with that as well? No, I've definitely seen that many people struggle with finding the right people. Um, especially the, the first few people are very difficult to find. Um, so that's why I encourage uh, postdocs to, or people making the transition to academia to basically try to figure out if there's somebody that you already know that is willing to come along who, is, uh, who can work as your partner in setting the lab up. Uh, because there is, you do wear many hats early on, but you do have to have some division of labor, like you're mentioning, so that um, the PI can focus on gathering the resources and navigating the institutional bureaucracy or whatever uh, that allows for the research to go on long term. Um, hiring people is one of the things that I think is, having been on faculty selection committees and then having seen how some of the candidates that we have selected uh, have developed um, over time and the, the issues they have struggled with, um, hiring good people is by far one of the greatest concerns of a young investigator um, because frankly we cannot compete with some of the bigger labs, established names, for uh, the top candidates. So, hear many complaints from my friends about the quality of the people that they are getting, and some of it has to do with expectations. I don't think that um, many of the candidates that one gets early on are going to be as good as you were as a postdoc, <laughs> or as motivated as you were as a postdoc. Mm -hmm. So getting over that barrier and trying to draw the best from everyone you have in the lab, I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I have to say that I think it's worthwhile to be very selective in whom you hire uh, into the lab and not be in a rush to just fill the space because hiring the wrong person, um, it's really... It, deleterious if you are a small lab where the environment can quickly degenerate if you hire the wrong person and it can quickly improve um, it can be much more synergistic if you have the right people in there so and I think some of the things that young PIs do that or should do uh, more frequently is for example um, don't just go by the letters that come in mm -hmm. uh, always call the references on the phone. Always. <laughs> People will say things on the phone 
that they will never write down an email or on a letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, look for candidates. Well, the other thing that I, you know, one mistake that I made perhaps, um, it's I didn't necessarily talk uh, talk in person with everyone that I hire. Um, I don't do that anymore. I've, I find that uh, meeting one on one and face to face, it's really important to see whether um, he or she is going to be a good fit for the lab mm-hmm. and whether it's going to be a productive relationship between me and him and her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I try to, you know, even though many of the candidates are from abroad, try to find a scenario where they're either here for a meeting or something and they can then be invited to the lab or even just go through the expense of uh, flying the meeting flying them in if it, it looks reasonable um, because it's money well spent uh, in terms of selecting the right people. Um, I want to look for, apart from you know, a great skill set and intellectual uh, commitment, um, it's really evidence that um, they can be good teachers and that can be in the letters, they can, be, they can come across in the number of collaborations they have published, um, because as in the case of a small lab, it is important for people to teach each other and to, you know, teachers tend to tolerate all sorts of people, mm-hmm. uh, good teachers. So I think it creates a better lab environment. Um, and I, I hope to get people that are, uh, I think the best people are internally driven. Mm-hmm. People who are into science, um, who are not into science, or who are tepid about it, um, there's very little you can do to motivate them. You're not going to plant the seed, and all of a sudden they're going to develop into great scientists. I think most people that I see are successful in my lab and others. It's because they're internally driven, they're resourceful, they're committed. They don't mind putting in the hours. They're aware that this is a difficult business, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think they take initiative. People whom you may suggest two ideas, and the next week they have done three things instead of those two that you suggested. Um, you know, people who are engaged. Uh, I have postdocs who um, often put papers on my desk that I, they find interesting, and they think that we should be applying some of those tools or you know, looking into this or that gene that this paper describes, and often I may not have had a chance to go over that paper yet. So people who go out of their way and are not just sort of following my directions um, are the kind of candidates that I, I prefer to um, to hire, or frankly, that I'm trying to hire. So then where would you suggest uh, some of these young investigators to, to try to start looking? Because I know a lot of them, they're like, they make the, the dire mistake of like posting an ad out there and then they get a bazillion uh, applicants and their email just get bombarded from, from around the world and they're like struggling to like screen through them and try to figure that out. What were some of your best strategies for finding good, good talent? Well, let me just start by saying that I don't think there's any way you can avoid <laughs> the, the kind of spam that you're talking about. Somewhat upsetting, but it's actually pretty easy to filter out quite quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think, you know, apart from, yes, you can post the ad on your website and so on, but I think going through and posting at meetings that you're attending or actually taking advantage of your old mentors that have much bigger labs mm. they get many more requests and suggesting that they throw a few CVs uh, of people that they can no longer take because they have too much, too many people in their lab already. Mm -hmm. so if they don't have room, they often they get so many requests that they may be able to pass uh, a few candidates along. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has worked well for me. Um, I think the candidates that I'm more, most interested in are those that approach me at meetings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or those that, you know, basically in their, in their initial email uh, indicate that, you know, they have read our publications and they have found X, Y, or Z interesting. Um, so basically shows some depth beyond um, a, a very generic letter. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's very difficult, but the best way to get good candidates is to try to publish well, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. After a paper, after we publish a, a good paper, then the number of candidates interested in the lab uh, typically goes up because some of these papers may, may get discussed in journal clubs or student classes and so on. So um, all of a sudden there are higher quality people applying mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that are more generally interested in, in the type of work we do. So a lot of the, the meetings and from previous mentors that, that have more well-established labs kind of like kick over some of those CVs to kind of make, or make those introductions. And just your base, at the end of the day, it's, it, it rests right on your science and how well you publish. But then at a certain point, you'll come across really good candidates that can basically go wherever they want. And I, I get feedback from other investigators, who, and it becomes like a, a recruitment strategy. <laughs> it almost comes back down to like having the best player on your team and how you try to like recruit them. What are some of those ways of being able to like uh, showcase some of your abilities towards uh, towards an actually good talent that that you found have worked really well for you? Uh, you know, I'm not sure there are any special tricks. I think um, it's up to the candidate. You can highlight the strengths of being smaller lab with great interaction with the PI mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so on relative to some of these much larger labs. Or you can highlight the fact that you may be applying uh, really cutting-edge tools that are not available at many other places, uh, including some of the other labs oh, that nice. she, or she may be considering. Nice. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I've tried both of those approaches, but it depends on the candidate and also what he or she is looking for. Mm -hmm. Some candidates are very focused on uh, the large name. They are not necessarily uh, concerned about some of the advantages that come working in a small lab where actually in terms of training for the future, they may be better in the sense that postdocs in a small lab or candidates in a small lab tend to do many more things than just their science just because they have to. If it's a small lab, then it's going to be a lab management aspect of it that they may be involved or they may be involved in mentoring students. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. 
technicians and so on. So there are advantages, but at the end of the day, it really is up to the candidate to make his or her mind up on their personal priorities. Mm, mm. And usually you kind of find that out during that engagement and try to like figure out what their, what their ultimate career type goals. But it sounds like just even getting in front of them and to have that kind of conversation, I think some kind of like struggle with just to even find those, to, uh, those candidates to interact with, to even like be able to approach them. So still those strategies still sound like they prove pretty solid for being able to like contact your old mentors and then being able to like publish really well and to even start that dialogue. And I think at a certain point it becomes still again about selling you and your science. And so I think I want to tr uh, transition a little bit more about uh, the communication side of things and, and selling your research and your work. Wow, what a great show. That was part one. Thanks for tuning in. Next show, we'll go deeper into the skills that has enabled him to be successful and what he's done to manage such a great research team. If you'd like to know more about Enrique and his research, please go check out our show notes and you'll see a link to all of his great published material and laboratory information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash episode 5. Thanks again, Enrique. Tune in next time to hear the continuation of his journey. Thank you for listening to the Leading Life Science Radio podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listener. So please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your journey. Also, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast.